I just thought we'd come and have a quick look at the um, rabbit. A rabbit. Well, there's lots of rabbits. Yeah, they're not exactly. Uh, uh, Spot the city boys. <laughs> rabbit. Rabbit. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Sustainable 114. Welcome yourself to 114 Sustainables, you cheeky chipmunk. Yeah, how you been? Yes, very well, thank you. I've been, oh, I've been earthy and, you know, connected and outside yeah stop that at once. more to Just come terrible behavior we are sustainable your friendly environment podcast all about people and the planet and why despite everything being ever so slightly nosed we can have a chuckle about it every now and then in wheel yes yes and what have we got coming up this week then farming Ooh, Ooh, about time we did this. Yes. Isn't it? We well, yeah, keen listeners will know that we've been sounding off about farming at various points over the last few years and we thought well, I suppose we could always speak to a farmer, yes. find out for ourselves. So, we had frankly an amazing day uh, off to visit the farm of Helen Browning, who, if you don't know, is the chief executive of the Soil Association. Who are they? Uh, I don't know. I was trying to explain this to somebody. It's quite hard to explain who the soil association. Can you have a go? They do a certification of organic foods, and they're like the body that campaigns for organic foods. So they do those things. So you can see, like when you buy organic stuff, it might have the soil association logo on it. They are the gatekeepers and ubermeisters <laughs> of what it is to be organic. Uh, and so, and she is the boss of that. And she's also an organic farmer in her own right, with like an organic pub and an organic restaurant. And she lives near. Sweden. Windon. But apart from that, we had a great time. <laughs> we did. So we were given hours of Helen's time. She was incredibly kind and generous uh, and basically took us round her farm. Um, and we got the chance to ask her loads of questions to get into some detail about, you know, why she got into farming, her story, but all sorts of things about organics. Um, and we got to see animals didn't we Dave? Uh, we did you got to see them at rather closer quarters than me because I had to go away so I'm looking forward to hearing all about which at the time of recording this little bit I genuinely have not heard what happened when you got assaulted by some cows and a pig. <laughs> yes I am sorry about your expensive recording <laughs> equipment that you left in my company it's now slightly more cowy than it was before but all in a good cause eh? Before any of that, just the usual disclaimer, we do work for environmental charities, but these are very much our own moves, views. Yay! <laughs> so if you've got any beef, beef. Yeah, with anything that we say, uh, take it up with me or him and don't go trotting to anyone that we work for. Uh, Yes? Y- yes. I could see your brain. I've never seen your brain working yeah. harder than it. You know, like and if you can't find someone to complain to, don't run around like a headless chicken. Crikey Moses. Right on with it! So we're, we're stood on a hill yep. um, and we're looking out at some at a field I know what a field is <laughs> um, this is an organic farm so what 
what is what looks different about this? What, what what's the what are the obvious differences we should be? Well, the obvious seeing? difference is if we walk another five meters into the field, and uh, you'll see what's in the field, which is uh, a whole load of clovers and uh, herbs and a real mixture of grasses, um, and so uh, most fertilized fields would not have this range this diversity of uh, of crop within the what we call the grazing sward so um the fundamentals of an organic farming system is that we're building the fertility using clovers and leguminous crops and then we're cashing in or using that fertility to grow our cereals or our vegetables or whatever else we're trying to grow so uh from here you might could this could be a conventional farm but as soon as you look down you know that it's different I guess one of the kind of key organic principles is diversity. You know, we're trying to, whether it's in the cropping system, and on the farm here we've got dairy cows, beef, sheep, pigs, we've got various arable crops, wheat, barley, oats, beans, peas. Um, uh, we're growing trees for uh, fruit and nuts. And it's that sort of diversity which I think is so important. Um, in the mix of things we do within the crops that we grow, uh, the genetics of the animals that we keep, um, because there's a huge amount of resilience in that diversity um, and the world has become increasingly specialized the, the mantra is simplify specialize um, that's the way to make money and uh, organic farming is a big pushback against that uh, which uh, is basically saying no resilience is about diversity in all its forms people soils crops animals genes uh let's mix it up a bit more complexity N nature is complex and uh, we're terribly frightened of complexity in farming and in <laughs> many other walks of life <laughs> yeah. uh so and on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> so i'm about well i think organic farming is about embracing complexity and learning to manage complexity and trying to mimic nature a bit more in what we do uh, rather than just trying to say we just kind of smash it all up and do what we want. How did this all begin? How did you become an organic farmer like how, how did you come to be surveying these fields <laughs> that we now know look different to other fields so i grew up here I, I my father came here in 1950 as a tenant of the church i grew up here i decided by about the age of about eight that i wanted to be a farmer uh for all sorts of reasons and um and but i grew up thinking uh you know that i was going to be um you know growing my 10 tons a hectare of wheat and getting 10,000 litres out of my cows I had all those kind of normal yield-based aspirations that most farmers have and then I started to see in my teens uh, that all the wildlife was disappearing we were ripping out the hedges to make room for the bigger kit and uh, I started to kind of have a feeling that something wasn't quite right um, looked at that harder went to do my degree in agricultural technology where they taught, took me to these sort of state-of-the-art <coughs> pig and poultry farms where the 
animals were in horrific conditions, in my view, even though I'm not, you know, I'm not a particularly squeamish person, but I really didn't like it. And so I started to think there must be a different way to explore and uh, sort of started to get interested in organic farming as potentially that solution or that kind of opportunity to explore a different approach. Started with one field here in 84 um, and, uh, and then took over the farm fully in 86 and started to convert the whole farm over a period of time. So it was a sort of, you know, for me, it's always been like a giant experiment. I'm not saying organic farming's perfect. It's far from perfect. Most of what we do in farming is far from perfect. Um, but it felt like it was an opportunity to explore how we could use our resources much more efficiently um, and how we could keep animals uh, more humanely. Uh, and it was probably and probably still is best in class. That's not to say it's good enough, but best in class in terms of a system which actually does aim to look after nature, look after animals, look after our health. Uh, and our soils and feed people. Do you do you talk to people who are from that generation where um, sort of post-war generation where it was imperative to increase production, to spray everything, to get? I mean, that, that, that that's the mindset, wasn't it? Like suddenly we we have to make all of our food here. We've got to. There's no choice but to spray yeah. things. Yeah, and my father was one of those people. So, you know, for him, the early broad-spectrum herbicides were a miracle. You know, when they'd been grappling with things like charlock forever, suddenly to be able to, um, uh, you know, just spray these things and they're gone. Um, and, uh, you know, it just it felt like a revelation. So he and his generation were at the forefront of all these kind of new approaches coming in. And it did feel to him like a criticism to be saying, no, I'm going to be going doing without this stuff. Um, and you can really understand it. You know, decisions are made at the time if you're for a whole host of reasons and at that time those reasons probably were right um that we're not always good at recognizing quickly enough when the context has changed or when the damage is too great or when there are new ways of doing things and a lot of companies of course jumped on that bandwagon and started to see farming as a tremendous market so we got slightly trapped in uh, this is the way to produce, to increase those yields. We didn't invest in the kind of approaches we're trying here. So, you know, there's a whole... You, you, can, you have to have a lot of compassion for where people have come from and why they uh, respond in the way that they do. And from a soil association point of view, you know, we have a big mantra of starting where people are because they are not wrong. They were just in a different uh, time and place. Day one storm And it was beautiful So at this point we were driving along and there in front of us were frankly the cutest little piglets you've ever seen. It was like the film Babe but like cuter and on steroids and They were um, on steroids. They're explicitly not allowed to be on steroids. You're absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Nice steroids. Please don't sue us. Uh, Yeah, incredibly cute Um, and Helen was expansive about her love for them. Uh, Unfortunately the batteries in our microphone had run out so we missed that. (laughs) (laughs) It was lovely though, trust us. It was really nice But, but this is when we got to talking to Helen about the piglets and and that sort of stuff slightly later on. (laughs) 
So this is a field full of extremely happy looking pigs, which is certainly uh, lifting my heart. Is it very run of the mill for you or, or what? I never get bored of the pigs. Whenever I'm fed up with life and think, what the hell am I doing? I come and see the pigs and they reassure me that I've done something useful in my life. And <laughs> I've given uh, thousands and thousands of pigs a better life than they would have had otherwise. And that seems like quite a good thing to have done. And I just love them. They're just so funny and curious and playful. And um, yeah, they're, they're they're amazing animals. I mean, they, they do look like they're having fun. Uh, you know, it's very... Uh, I'm going to try to say a word I can't say now, but it's very, it's very tempting to anthropomorphise. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but they do. They look like they are, they are playing. They are, you know, winding each other up. They're being curious. So all of these sort of really human qualities, I guess. But is, is that how you feel about them? Yes, very much so. And they are. And, uh, you know, they, they have a lot of our qualities. Um, they are playful. You can tell on an animal it's not just a pig you can tell with a lot of animals when they're having fun and when they're not having fun it's pretty it's pretty common sense actually so I get sometimes a bit cross with all this kind of oh we can't we you know you can tell uh, quite a lot about the state an animal's in and with pigs you can tell very easily because if their tails are curly um, then they're having they're in reasonable form Um, a pig's tail is a very good way of telling whether it's having fun or not so in a conventional farm uh, they wouldn't have their tails, would they? Or um... On a lot of farms, their tails are, cut, are docked um, uh, very early in their life, um, and that's because a lot of farms will experience what they call tail biting, uh, where they'll start chewing each other's tails just because they're bored uh, or they're aggressive because they're confined and they will start chewing on each other, and that can be very unpleasant. You can end up with horrible um, uh, cannibalistic behaviour. Um, so they chop the tails off, and uh, but I always think that actually uh, you know if you are having to do that you're getting something fundamentally wrong with your pig husbandry and here we've never had to think about cutting tails or cutting teeth because they are entertained their noses are in the soil that's what they love doing they're rooting they're wallowing they're playing they've got room to move around Um, if one decides to be a bit of a bully the others can get away from it Um, so uh, yeah it's tail, tail docking is something we've never needed to even think about doing So what is it about, uh, if anything, that's different about the process of slaughter, killing the animals in an organic farm, in your farms, than you might find in a conventional farm? Because I guess that's the sort of grisly bit you can't really avoid, right? You're right, you can't avoid it. So uh, all abattoirs have to be uh, certified, have to be inspected and, and certified by an organic body, by the Soil Association or whoever. And um, obviously the same welfare measures have to be in place. We're not allowed to use non-stun systems at all. Um, and uh, most, uh, the, a lot of the, the sort of regulations are around trying to make sure that you end up with uh, the traceability of organic stock and that you don't get cross-contamination from non-organic animals. So most organic animals will be slaughtered first thing in the morning when the line's clean um, and have separate cold storage and that sort of thing for the carcasses. Um, so method of slaughter is the same, really, on uh, organic and non-organic farms. Uh, the two main methods for pigs are either carbon dioxide gas stunning or uh, electrical stunning, 
we currently use gas stunning, uh, which I think has many advantages because the animals can stay together in their family groups right until the moment where they go into the into the carbon dioxide. So you know, it's it's not the pleasant part of it, but I've been I've spent a lot of my time in abattoirs over the years, and I have to say uh, that I've been uh, that I'm very reassured by the way slaughter is conducted um, in good abattoirs in this country uh, these days. Um, and I think if you went to see it, you'd feel reasonably calm about it. Look up here, I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen. These are the racing pigs. So we had pig racing last week, uh, the International Pig Racing Festival. And uh, these were the specially selected pigs because they've got very distinctive markings. Um, so they came in for training about a month ago. And training basically involves them chasing a feed bucket and getting tame enough to deal with small children. And uh, as you can tell, they're now so tame that you're, they'll virtually eat you alive. Yeah, I don't think my trainers are coming out of this. <laughs> in a safe state um and uh, yes you are very naughty god you are um <laughs> these were scared of people just three weeks ago weren't you now look at you you do anything for a cuddle <laughs> yeah <laughs> And you can see how much they're loving the water. So, you know, just digging their great holes, muddy holes, yeah. pl- blowing bubbles in the water trough. Um, just generally oh, being... Well. Yeah, they, they stick That's their fantastic. nose hands at the water. that was all very nice you know seeing farm stuff and animals and and things but we were there for you know hard investigative journalism that we're known for um and (laughs) so we thought we'd better sit down with helen and ask her some questions because you know there are legitimate criticisms of organic farming and um yeah we wanted to chuck them out and we didn't just go to a recording studio or a shed we sat in some field Yes, one one field. Very nice field it was too. So if you hear things like birds and bees, well, that's not anything to do with all. That's some birds and some bees. So if I'm in a supermarket and I see the Soil Association logo yeah. on a on a bit of cheese or something, yeah. um, what does that actually tell me? Does it tell me that there's been no pesticides used or... Or what? You know what? Well, as I say, the rule book is huge, um, and uh, basically, uh, you know, there are one or two um, chemicals, or very old-fashioned types of chemicals that you can use. But we've never used anything here on the farm in my thirty-two years here. Um, but uh, basically, you're not using any manufactured uh, fertilizers. Uh, you're not using uh, herbicides, fungicides, um, all of the normal chemicals that farmers would use. You're not using uh, routine 
between antibiotics, um, you still can use the odd antibiotic. But what it's saying, as I say more than anything else, is that you are fundamentally, as a farmer, looking after your soil, building your soil, looking after biodiversity, um, uh, looking after your animals to a very strict set of rules. Um, and uh, and so, you know, to try and say in one soundbite, you know, what is organic farming is impossible because there are about a thousand rules and regulations that you have to follow. But the basic principle is that you're trying to farm with nature rather than to crush nature out, which is what a lot of farming's done over recent decades. There's an awful lot of land here. That's the thing that I've been noticing, just how much of the outside there is for all these crops to go in. Uh, one of the things that people say about organic farming is there's not enough, there's 7 billion people, there's not enough land to do all of this piggy running around sort of stuff. Is that fair um, or what? And to what extent can this ever be anything other than around the edges of intensive farming, do you think? There's a whole series of answers to that question. Firstly, we can't carry on producing food in the way we're producing it at the moment. It's amazingly wasteful, of resources, um, and we're running out of those resources. It's hugely energy inefficient, 10 calories in, one calorie out. So there's all sorts of problems with the way we're uh, producing food at the moment. We're basically relying on oil in order to produce food, and we're destroying most of nature in the process. So there has to be change, and I think organic is at the forefront of that change. It's not without its challenges. There are many things we need to improve in organic farming. But some of the things that I feel particularly encouraged about are things like agroforestry, uh, which we're starting to experiment with here. So what is, what is that? So bringing perennial crops like trees into your farmed environment so that you're on an acre of land, you're able to lift production, the overall production of food being produced there, uh, by 40 or 50 percent perhaps, um, because you're mixing it up, you're making it more complex again. Uh, if you look at the, the yields of biomass that nature can generate, they are very high. Uh, we've gone down a very specialist route and we're trying to compare an unfertilised crop of, of wheat, say, um, with a very highly fertilised crop of wheat and saying, well, look, there's a 20% or 30% yield difference, so therefore we can't feed the world. That's a really simplistic way of looking at things. Um, when you see what we're using food for, we're feeding far too much grain to our animals. So if you want to be feeding people more efficiently, we need to be eating less meat and feeding animals on grass, not meat, not, not on grain. We need to be reducing waste. And we need to be helping those countries where they are struggling to feed themselves to do so sustainably. And organic type techniques have been shown to be very effective in places like Africa, where the fundamental need is to build the soil so that nutrients can be retained and uh, climatic conditions better mitigated. So there's a, a whole bunch of stuff about how we need to feed the world. Some of that's about consumption, some of it's about waste, uh, some of it's about new techniques of mimicking nature better to produce more food. Um, but uh, this approach has... The, uh, has more potential to feed people under the constraints we need to live under than any other I've come across so far. So I suppose, is most food too cheap or is organic food too expensive, if you see what I mean? So where people say, oh, I can't afford organic. Yeah. Uh, have we got that wrong or what? So... I think the short answer to that is if we were internalising the externalities of farming 
organic food will probably be the cheapest way to produce our food. So what is that? So that means if we're taking into account the damage that we're doing in uh, some of our farming systems and the benefits, the public benefits that a, that a system like this provides, I mean, you're, you're sitting in one, uh, this is a public benefit. Uh, orchids, amazing grass, downland species, um, you know, those those are things that are, we're sequestering more carbon, uh, we're not polluting the water um, uh, with pesticides. So, you know, if you start to weigh up those things properly, which of course the current economic model for farming doesn't do, then my view is is that organic comes out as the most cost-effective way to do things. But if you are in Asda, yeah. which I was the other day, and actually, and this isn't quite right, because I was going to say, if you're in Asda and you're faced with the choice between an organic thing and a non-organic thing, the non-organic thing is usually cheaper. However, when I was in Asda the other day, there wasn't any organic. Exactly. I mean, it was a small store, so yeah. it may be, I don't want to be down on it, yeah. maybe the bigger ones have it, but um, it, I was really struck that it just wasn't there. And even when it is there, you know, if you are on a budget, you are going to choose the cheaper carrots. So how do you change that? Well, you change it by changing the way we do policy around farming and food um, so that you do internalise those externalities um, because that's the way we need to look at things better. If we're, going to, if we're not going to keep causing ourselves problems further down the road, then we have to try and make sure that uh, food carries its true cost and it's not doing that at the moment. Um, and I don't think we should be relying on markets to sort all this stuff out. Um, I think that's a real fallacy. We've all worked hard at trying to get markets to work uh, for our values better, um, but I don't think we can rely on that. And so we do need better policy making around some of this stuff. If we want to see this kind of farming, then we need to make sure that this sort of farming is supported or that there are the right incentives and disincentives in place to tip the balance towards this being the cost-effective way to do things and not just relying on the consumer to bail out the countryside. So you mentioned policy making. Mm. Um, there's been some policy making going on, I've <laughs> noticed. <laughs> um, what's your view of, I guess, two very obvious things? One, Brexit. And farming, what's you know, what does it mean for you and for farming in general? And the other, that nice chap Michael Gove, who's been saying quite a lot of interesting things that I certainly haven't heard previous environment secretaries say. So, I mean, Brexit so far has been quite good news for farmers because of the changes in the exchange rate. Um, so uh, there's been less import of food and more opportunity for exports. There's been a very short-term win. How that plays out, how the trade deals play out, whether farmers are going to be undercut by uh, lower standard foods. So we've had the chlorine chicken, you oh, know, yeah. sort of, you know, um, kerfuffle. Um, we know that the Americans and the South Americans would love to be exporting to us, uh, particularly beef uh, that will be feedlot beef treated with 20 times is this, the level of antibiotics that we're currently using in this country. We re- released a report on this the other day uh, where you've got a lot more GM feed and all those kind of things going into the system. Um, so if we're going to be undercut by cheap imports because we end up uh, being forced into a trade environment where those imports become legal, um, then I think that's a real threat to some types of, of, of farming here. Um, so that the trade side is really 
crucial. The standards we set in this country, and you know, we would argue as an NGO, we'd want to see those standards set high. Um, but if you're requiring that of your farmers, and then you're undercutting them with cheap imports from stand from systems that don't meet that, that's a real risk. Most of, particularly horticulture, a lot of food processing, and vets in our abattoirs, and lots of other people are coming from are, are coming from the EU. So if that labour force isn't available, that's a real threat to a lot of our horticultural sector and a lot of our food processing and food service sector. So there's all of those issues. Um, and then we have, you know, it's already clear that Gove is going to get rid of direct payments over time. Direct payments are the, the, the funding a farmer gets uh, just for effectively being a farmer. Right. Um, they're, they're historic payments. Um, they've evolved over years through the common agricultural policy. But mm-hmm. that most farmers, including us, uh, will get a chunk of payment um, uh, per hectare of land each year. That's going to go by the looks of things. And the question question is what will replace it um, because a lot of your medium-sized smaller medium-sized farms are very dependent on those payments um, and uh, when you look at the economics of farming something like half of farm income comes from those um, that, that payment source so we're hoping that we're going to see uh, investment in the environment that we're going to see stronger environmental payments um, there's talk about payments for animal welfare the public money for public goods mantra hopefully brings in even things like public health um, um, so what we're hoping for and what Gove's been signalling is that we will invest that money in things that are in the public benefit that farmers can deliver and still stay in business by delivering those, those other benefits. So some of our listeners are um, the kind of people who, instead of being out on a Friday night, are on Facebook looking to see what we post uh, on us on our page. Uh, and we asked what they might ask you um, or ask a, an organic farmer. Um, one that really jumped out at me was, was from uh, a listener called Joachim, who said, you know, what are other conventional farmers' perception of you? Um, you know, do they condone what you're doing? I think it's a real mixed view. I think um, organic has always been seen as a uh, an inherent criticism of the status quo, and to some extent, that's true. Um, but actually, over the last few years, you've seen a huge coming together of interest from organic and non-organic farmers, um, because most farmers recognise now that their soils are running out of steam. Um, they recognise the chemistry is not working anymore. So, you know, whereas I, if you, if I went to East Anglia ten years ago, I was usually there for sport, uh, you know, in some farmers' <laughs> club uh, where they were going to give me a hard time. Now, actually, we're being asked over to go over to talk about rotations, to talk about cover crops, to talk about getting animals back onto farm and uh, all those kind of things. So I think that there's a real sense amongst farmers that we're all in this together, that we're facing some really common challenges. We've got the same challenges in the marketplace and uh, and, and environmentally too. Um, but there will be still some differences of view about which way to go. Some people would say actually just intensifies further uh, and let's get more animals locked up into sheds and uh, you know let's get down these kind of you know biotechnology routes or whatever it might be. So there will be differences of opinion. But I think that there's more togetherness and more understanding of the of the common problems than there ever has been just tell us about this place because when we when you came when we came up here you said this is a special place for you tell us why 
this valley. Well, this, this yeah, particular hollow. This, this particular hollow. So this hollow, these hollows are amazing. I, they, I don't know how they came into being. Um, they were probably quarries, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, but the, you can just tell just sitting in here, I can just sit up here and lie back and look up at the sky, uh, surrounded by orchids and amazing um, grasses and feel at peace. I knew all the woods and the resting places Where the small birds sang when winter days were over A story of self is all. Um, well, I can guess, but no, you tell me. Well, it's a thing. It's a thing that is in certain sorts of activisty organiser parlances, right? It's a thing that you do. You know, when you get people, these great speakers, they stand up at conferences and they say, oh, "I'm standing here before you today because as a young man, uh, I yeah, once yeah, yeah. that sort of thing." And they've got a very clear sort of story of why it is they believe what they do, and they go, "This is my story. Now I'm here to help you with you." Yeah, your story, I've right? heard our chief executive tell the story of himself, you know, multiple, multiple times. <laughs> you know, I now know it perfectly. Indeed. So, well, I think that's all bollocks anyway but uh, the closest I come to it is like people say to me why are you a vegan and I think the closest I come to it is when I was about seven or eight years old I was camping near a farm and I went and toddled off on my own and I ended up in battery cages I like found myself what kind of, yeah I don't know how it happened but I like found myself inside a battery chicken cage and I remember just this kind of teetering wall of chickens and noise and you know beakless birds hammering at their cages and all that sort of thing oh my in my head it's become some sort of Terry Gilliam dystopian kind of thing and it probably weren't that much at all. But that's like this memory that I remember having seared into me of, my God, this is horrific, right? And I haven't been to many farms since then. And I know that not all farms are like that. Indeed, one of the, my good friends is a farmer and it's all fine, right? But where we went the other day in Swindon with that Helen Browning was about as far away from that as it's possible mm. to get. It's like comparing some chalk... <laughs> With some cheese. My God, that's a good analogy. Yes. How? Why has nobody else come up with that? <laughs> um, didn't you think? Didn't you think it was like didn't seem like a farm? That's that's the basic yeah, thing I thought. Yeah. So I think the you know the image of farming is that you know it's grubby, just very fun, sort of brutally functional. You know, there's mud because you need mud. You know, there are like dead things hanging around because that's collateral for keeping things alive <laughs> you see what I mean it's it's mucky it's messy it's brutal you know it's corrugated dye and it's it's rotten bits of machinery it's horrible there's piles of grain there's a grumpy farmer there's it's bleak basically there's certainly no flowers any land that can be used to grow crops if it's that sort of farm is is growing crops there's no flowers that sort of thing this was well like you say polar opposite it was a place where you could go and sit down in a wildflower meadow and have a long chat while bees were buzzing around you and skylarks were above you and all the rest of it um we saw lots of birds of prey when we were there apparently the dude that looks for them has seen 16 birds of prey on the farm all of this stuff was just to be honest it was more like the reflection of farming that you see on the packaging yeah. <laughs> of yeah. meat and dairy goods yeah. than in reality um and it certainly made yeah, I, I I was very much bought into it, I have to say. Now, look, we were being shown round by the boss of 
a company that exists to promote organic farming. Like, she knows what she's doing. Um, I'd imagine that there are nastier bits of the farm or at least less pretty bits of the farm we didn't see, but... I mean, we saw pretty much all of it. Well, you certainly did. You saw the inside of some of the animals, didn't you? Uh, yes, almost, yeah. So, I mean, I feel, you know, it, it's not about to make me unshackle my militant veganism or anything like that. But what it did make me think, first and foremost, is there's, a, there's this just massive spectrum, right? Yes. I saw when I was a kid, or at least the sort of image that's seared into my brain, is horrible, nasty, awful battery farming, right? Then that there is like as bucolic as it gets, and you need a vast amount of land to do it on and you probably need a lot of money and a lot of patience and be able to charge people a premium for food and all of that sort of stuff that we talked about right but uh most farms probably live somewhere in the middle of that and there's a spectrum right so some farmers you know we here want to do more and more rewilding and more greening and then you know they will all more or less look after their animals in more or less sort of ways so um i think the main thing was it was very very helpful to realize farming is not a thing Farming yes. is not a, farmers are not all bastards. Farmers are not even all anything. They're all different. And even the ones that might be considered bastards may be being bastards for particular reasons, like economics or stuff like that. So just made me think, that's all. Bit of reflection. That's good for a chap, in it? Yes, very good. So uh, it took going to Swindon and a farm for you to discover that things aren't necessarily black and white. Except the cows. Apart <laughs> from the Frisians. So that is just about it for another episode of Babel 114 in the can. Thank you so much to Helen Browning for well, just being great, basically. Uh, what a lot of her time she gave us and what a magnificent operation she's got going there. And isn't it brilliant when people are so passionate and enthusiastic about what they do? Yes, it's uh, a novelty for me. Yeah, yes. Well, <laughs> I wonder what that's like. Uh, no, it was great. I, it was. I will long remember that day going around the bucolic scenes of Eastbrook Farm, seeing what Helen does. Thank you, as always, to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts and ends and intertwinkles this podcast, and to the wonderful Arthur Stovall for the logo that adorns it and will one day. Oh yes, adorn the merch. But not yet. Definitely. Yes. Soon. And thank you to everyone who helped with the episode. Thank you, Laura, in particular, for all that you did to help us get this off the ground. You can get in touch with us and tell us what you thought of the show. You can find us on all the usual ways. You can find us on the Facebook, just search Sustainy Babble. Uh, find us on the Twitter at the Babble Wagon, or you can drop us an email to hello at sustainababble.fish. And if you love the babble to your core and you've got it also in your core some money sloshing about you can donate it to uh, our crowdfunder at www.patreon.com slash sustainababble where you can join the growing and loyal army of people that are forking out tiny bits of cash here and there to help keep the babble viable Yes, thank you to all those people. We love you. Um, it is brilliant. In fact, like we've already put that money to good use by like getting train tickets to go out and see Helen Browning. You for paid instance. for it. You, you paid, paid for, it. for it, Babble. Uh, so we really appreciate it. Thank you. And if you want to make us even happier, leave us a five-star review on the iTunes or wherever else you get your, your podcast because it helps. Right, uh, that's just about it. I'm off to reconsider everything I think about my dietary choices. Oh, good. That shouldn't take long. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
I think they're going to eat your <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell Dave that that's <laughs> the, the the thing that shields the microphone from wind has now got a sort of gel styling on it. Don't tell Dave why. It's a good job he's gone, isn't it? it? Yeah, awfully good job. Yeah. <laughs>